Welcome to the Self-Love Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Rosenberg. I am the author of The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Codependent Narcissist Trap, and the creator of the Codependency Cure and Hitch Trauma Resolution Treatment Programs. If you identify with codependency, which I renamed the Self-Love Deficit Disorder, or you're caught in the crosshairs of narcissistic abuse or gaslighting, you've come to the right place. Expect the very best information that I know, whether from my own personal journey of recovery or through my 35 years of professional experience. What separates my work from others is my understanding of the origin of the problem, the solutions, and the necessity to take responsibility for one's broken picker that always points them to the dream of the soulmate, but the nightmare of the cellmate. So join my self-love recovery community and set your sights on the cure, self-love abundance. Today, I am so very fortunate and actually excited with my guest, who is a man that I kind of idolize. He is bright, very intellectual. He understands mental health concepts in a way that resonates with the person's experience of them. Plus, he wrote some books that I'm sure you're going to recognize. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. George Simon. Can I call you George, Dr. Simon? Is that absolutely, okay? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Could you tell our viewers and our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been studying uh, personality and character for about 45 years professionally. Wow. That's a while. Doing both formal and clinical research. I had some wonderful mentors in the field. Uh, I am a student of Theodore Milan's. So I've had some very good teachers, uh, but it, that's been my area of focus for, like I said, the better part of 45 years. And it wasn't really just my research into the field that helped enlighten me. I think, or at least I like to think I've been enlightened, but it was the stories that so many people told in their relationships with character-disturbed people that really enlightened me and also caused me to appreciate the fact that not only was I not helping very much, but the professions, the allied mental health professions, were not helping very much when it came to either helping the, the relationship partners in abusive, manipulative relationships, or helping the character-impaired people. Um, right. And um, I got very frustrated. I thought about actually leaving the field. I thought, if I'm going to do this, hmm. I actually want to see people's lives change for the better. Right. Uh, I, I would. It's not that I need the ego boost, but I would like them to at least come in and report, hey, my life is better thanks to what we've been doing here. Not necessarily thanks to you, but at least thanks to what you've been doing here and the information you've given me. And that wasn't happening early on, despite all the training that I had. And I knew that something had to change. Uh, and so it turned out that that something had to do with me and my perspective. And right. as soon as my, you know, there's there are many, many uh, ancient metaphors about this. And many old sayings, but as soon as my perceptions changed, my viewpoint changed, I began to intervene differently, and that has made all the difference. It, it reminds me of an overused and often inaccurate ship story 
because it's been said so many times in different ways, but one of the versions is Columbus and his armada of ships were getting ready to land on, I believe it was Central America. A native saw something different out um, in the ocean, but he couldn't really recognize it. He just knew something was different. And he just looked and just tried to see it. And he called the shaman, the community shaman, and he looked and he looked, he meditated. And then he was able to discern thing made of metal and wood. So that whole story and, and it's and the concept that you can't see what you don't understand. Right. Um, it deeply impacted me um, in my own personal journey and my recovery because after a couple divorces and a lot of shame, I knew that not only could I not see what was happening, but no one else could see. We must be brothers from different mothers because I, <laughs> I think um, I, I think I think that there's so much in common in, in how we think so why I'm super delighted uh, for this this podcast. But what you just said inspires me. It does not surprise me because early on when I had these ideas that would eventually become the Human Magnet Syndrome book, I was reading as many books as I could. And your book, uh, Sheep's... Um, In Sheep's Clothing. In Sheep's Clothing. It helped me understand even more what I was going through. Tell us a little bit about the books that you wrote, if you don't mind. Well, In Sheep's Clothing was inspired by one phenomenon, and that's the phenomenon we currently commonly call gaslighting. The term was around, but nobody was using it very frequently or commonly. What I was seeing with folks who we erroneously at the time called codependent uh, which is maybe something else we'll talk about later. But <laughs> what, what, what I, is that? Codependence. <laughs> I think I heard well, that before, but go, but go ahead. Yeah. But what I was seeing was that these folks were describing this crazy making feeling that they had when their gut was telling them one thing, but they couldn't objectively verify and validate their gut hunch feelings about what it was that their toxic relationship partner was doing in the relationship. And so I adopted the uh, strategy of seeing for myself. I said, okay, you know, come on in, bring your partner. We'll have just a couple of evaluative sessions. And, you know, it depends on how you come to that. I did my very best to bring in no biases. Right. And when I did that, I saw clearly what they were talking about, but it didn't have a label. Um, uh, but I saw clearly the phenomenon, this feeling of being crazy, because these tactics have that effect. Manipulative personalities know exactly what strategies to use to make you doubt and to uh, make you want to believe that they're right and you're crazy. Um, and when they add intensity and conviction or apparent conviction to the whole strategy, it induces even more doubt. And as soon as I saw it, as soon as my eyes were opened, I thought, you know what? There's got to be more people out there experiencing right. this. And that's when I started to do the research. And that's what gave birth to the book. Um and then I had to really work very hard to get the terms right. Um, in my first book, I didn't even use, in my first edition, excuse yeah. me, of the first book, I did not even use the term gaslighting because right. it wasn't even being commonly used at the time. Yeah. And 
The other thing that that became evident during that research and during all the hundreds of therapy sessions that I had, yeah, was that all of the things that I was taught uh, framework wise, and I had a very eclectic professional training. Yes, but I all the ways that I was taught to see people and evaluate situations and diagnose the nature of problems were failing me when it came to properly understand people with what I call character disturbances. And I realized that there is a continuum, and that's what inspired my second book, that there is a continuum between what has traditionally been thought of as neurosis, and I'm going to make this ultra simple for folks. Neurosis is that phenomenon that happens when you deal with a pretty intact conscience that might be a little bit oppressive, might be a little bit too rigid, mm -hmm. and you're not even free to just be the kind of um, ignorant sometimes, uh, not necessarily evil meaning, but stumbling, bumbling kind of person with all these baser instincts and urges that you're trying to figure out how to satisfy without doing too much damage. And for the overly conscientious, this can be a really painful life journey. Right. And so um, back in the Victorian age, we had some people who were so neurotic, who were so overly conscientious and who were so riddled with pathological levels of guilt and shame that was unnecessary, that they actually had physical symptoms that were the focus of treatment and gave birth to all of our traditional models of... That was, Freud called that hysteria. Right, um, right. Yes. And, and, and those models lasted for a long time. Yes, they did. About 1930. I was witnessing them fall apart even when I was in school. Do you know in school, they were still teaching us in the classes that were primarily, like I said, I had an eclectic training, but yeah. in, the, in the classes that were still pretty much analytically oriented, yeah. they were right. still right. teaching things like autistic children were the product of cold mothers nursing <laughs> Right. Emotionally distant mothers who weren't, their heart wasn't in the nursing. And that's Man. what produced autistic children. Oh, my goodness. Well, let, mean, let me. Yeah. And, and, and to that, they were also uh, teaching and diagnosing homosexuality as a mental health disorder. And that's exactly right. Insane. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. yes, go ahead. Please. So, I mean, there were all these crazy ideas that we're still persisting about why people do the things they do and what kind of problems can happen. And what I realized that at the opposite end of the spectrum are not the overly conscientious, but the not conscientious enough. Right. The folks whose consciences are improperly formed or are absent altogether and who do as they please, no matter who they hurt um, and who um lack empathy and uh, appropriate care and concern and run rough roughshod over people um in relationships and, and go through life like bulldozers and etc and i thought 
There's a wide spectrum out there in, in our day and time. It's no longer the Victorian era. In our day right. and time, more relationship problems happen because people are undeveloped in their moral character, don't have enough conscientiousness, don't have enough uh, conscience, and that's why things are falling apart. And as soon as I understood that, man. Right. Do you mind if I just jump in on something, if you don't mind? Sure. I developed my relationship compatibility uh, continuum model for the reason everyone was saying narcissist codependence. He's a narcissist. She's a codependent. Or it was not a static one size fits all. And so um, to what you're saying and in agreement with what you're saying, I needed to understand it, but the world to understand that, yes, there is a codependent and, and there is, this is the definition, but they can get healthier. And as they get healthier, they're no longer a codependent. And there is a range and there are narcissists and, or as you would say, character disordered individuals who have personality disorders. And unfortunately, the, those folks are unlikely to get better. But if you're not quite at that end of the continuum, you can get better. So not everyone is despicable. Mean They don't all have no empathy. So exactly. that whole idea of a continuum, it wasn't so much that I wanted to you know, write a book on it. It helped me sort out my own reality to figure out the problem and what seemed more resonant to the human developmental model, the psychotherapy model. We can get better, healthier. We can get less healthy. So I love your model, and, and I'm grateful to hear that you have done it for folks who as you call our character, is it character disturbed or character Char challenge? Well, I say character disturbed because there's a difference between mild and moderate character impairments and a full-blown character disorder. Which uh, is personality sort of the same, right? Are we talking about the same thing? Well, we're talking about, I use, I'm a stickler for terms. I, I understand. I know many personality disordered individuals who have good, solid character. My obsessive-compulsive brain surgeon okay. is as obsessive-compulsive as can be, and it's a problem in his relationships. Okay, It is okay. not a problem when he is doing brain surgery. <laughs> guess, yes, that's good. It's okay. probably an asset. And he has admirable character. I understand. So okay. you can be even a personality disorder and not be character impaired. So I'm I'm a stickler. Uh, okay. Our words have to mean things. And this uh, is, it, it, I, I, I'm just <clears throat> confessing up front. It just drives me crazy when I go on the internet and I read narcissist this or narcissist that. Like every single narcissist is the same, that there's only one type and they all have this characteristic. I just want to pull my hair out. Because yeah, I know at, that the spectrum is broader than that. Yeah, and look at my, me. Yeah, I've pulled my, been pulling it out. <laughs> you know, I could go, yeah, 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 this whole time. But I'll just go, yes. Because I believe the field that most interests me is the relationships that what I call codependence, where I now term self-love deficient. Um, and the human magnet center, my dear, they always have a relationship with someone who has a personality disorder. So I am specific to narcissistic personality disorder, which, by the way, because of an email you sent me, I'm going to rewrite portions of my book because of what I've learned from you. So thank you for that. 
but it's focused on three personality disorders, borderline, narcissistic, and antisocial personality disorder. And they are different uh, beyond, you, you can't simplify it. They are different. So your way of thinking about things, your way of understanding things, and um, the way that you avoid being pigeonholed or misunderstood, I, I admire. So um, please, please continue. Okay, so uh, in in character disturbance, I wanted to lay the whole spectrum out there. And I also wanted to provide the foundation for seeking the right kind of help, because what I was realizing more than anything else is that so many people came to me with reports of what I, this is the label I use, therapy-induced trauma. Iatrogenic trauma. It happened a number of ways. Yeah. Um, either the, the uh, therapist was bamboozled by the very skilled impression manager, the, the person with the character disturbance who was yeah. so skilled at the art of positive impression management that they pulled the wool over the therapist's eyes, which yeah. made which made the person who's already suffering a lot of gaslighting feel even more gaslighted. And they, they, they already felt crazy enough. And now where they've come for some validation, they're thinking, oh my God, I must be crazier than even I thought. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that can happen is that the therapist's theoretical orientation is so out of step with what has to be done uh, within the context of a, a therapy session, that things will definitely get no better, and they might even get worse. And so the other part of therapy-induced trauma is where the person leaves the encounter feeling worse than when they came. Yeah. So I wanted in character disturbance to explain, this is what you have to look for uh, if you're going to even get help. And that's when I started to do workshops because I realized that there weren't very many, very many folks out there who got it well enough to provide the right kind of service. Iatrogenic trauma is the trauma that you experience from the treatment you receive. The most severe cases, you go in for an amputation and they take off the wrong leg. If that happens, if um, you are hurt because of ignorance, because of lack of information, knowledge, or that the psychotherapist has their own mental health issues, including a character disorder. That type of trauma, especially in marriage therapy or couples therapy, can scar a codependent, traumatize a codependent, keep them from ever reaching out for help again. And that is heartbreaking trauma. I say loud and clear, if you are married to a pathological narcissist, according to my definition, do not go to marriage therapy yeah. or couples therapy. But I don't want to digress. I just wanted to just kind of jump yeah. in and say, bravo, cool. We're, we're on that same page and, and say a little bit more about it. So please continue. And then my book with uh, Dr. Kathy Armistead, my first co-authored book, uh, How Did We End Up Here? Yeah. was a compilation of all the research that I had done about how partners get into the mess that they're in when one person is reasonably solid in character, but they got bamboozled by somebody who is really character impaired, but good at manipulating and good at impression management. Uh, and so they only realized the mess they were in too late. 
So really the subtitle to how did we end up here would have been uh, probably more appropriately. And now what do I do or where do I go yeah. from here? Now that I've finally gotten out of this mess and now that I finally under, un, understand um, what happened to me, uh, how do I make sure or do the best I can to make sure that I don't fall into the same traps again? So that's why I wrote that book. And then my latest book, Essentials for the Journey, Oh, okay. uh, it's its subtitle is embracing and living what what I call the Ten Commandments of character and I know oh. that's kind of audacious it's a, I um, love the title because I bet the titles are great if they're catchy and they connect to the book and my guess is yours are you have some really good commandments may I call you Moses no <laughs> no, no I, okay. I'm not the Actually, new Moses we're, uh, we're, we're both but, Jewish it was a joke I get it okay, yeah, never mind. yeah. Uh, is I'm not the new Moses, but <laughs> what I realized is, and this, you know, this is an amazing that we're going to talk about something else here in just a minute. I think it's okay. really important related to why I use that word commandments, because we have long known this yeah. within the, within the framework of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. We have long known that the way we think about things the attitudes we have, the way we see things influences heavily how we act. So if I really believe, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a man in a relationship, and I think women are meant to be naturally subservient, that they're inherently inferior, blah, 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 blah. If, these are the, if this is the mindset that I have, I'm going right. to treat my partner in a certain way. You can pretty right. well count on it. But right. here's the other part of the equation that most therapists don't consider. Please we stop. know that the two are intimately connected, the way we think and the way we act. But it is a lot more powerful, mm -hmm. efficacious, which is a fancy word for able to affect uh, a, a more positive outcome more mm -hmm. effectively. It is a lot more, and it's actually simpler, it's a lot more powerful and efficacious to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. And most therapists make the exact same mistake that people in troubled relationships make. They waste incredible time, energy, and breath trying to convince somebody to think differently right when all they have to do is insist that they behave right differently and and when with the clients that i work with codependents or sld's self-love deficient the problem is their whole life going back to their attachment trauma years in their childhood any action or behavior was crushed so all they have are their thoughts and and their predictions of failure and right. and to what you're saying is thinking your way out it's what do they call it? analysis by paralysis yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's not going to get you very far very fast and right. so that's why i brazenly called these axioms that i talk about in the mm -hmm. in my latest book essentials for the journey why i called them commandments i first introduced them in my book character disturbance Mm -hmm. There are certain things that if we will simply reinforce ourselves for doing, 
we can't do them perfectly and we can't do them reliably uh, at first. But if we will just observe some of the time-tested principles of what you call healthy self-love, because self-love deficits are just everywhere when when it comes to getting suckered into a relationship with a character impaired person, right? This was the gift and insight that you were given, right? Yeah. And why you say no more self-love deficit disorder. Pass it on, people. Okay. <laughs> right. And so you and and it looks like as a stickler for the terms, you relabeled it more accurately as to what it really is. And um there are things there are 10 axioms that you can observe, behaviors that you can engage in and reinforce yourself for that will change your whole outlook, that will change your whole life, that will expand your awareness and bring you to not just emotional health, but psychological health, character health, and spiritual health all at the same time. Explain character health please. Character health is when it's not just all about me, and mm -hmm. I have an appropriate relationship with the universe. Okay. It's a balance. Uh, a wholesome, it's a balance. You know, character-impaired people have toxic, abusive relationships with every, as the analysts used to call it, with every single object in yep. their lives, including their substances of choice. Right. Mm -hmm. They treat everything else that exists like it exists for them and for their gratification and for their exploitation. That's and, the problem. And it's interesting just to do a little twist on the word object. If they treat everything like an object, including a person, well, a job object doesn't require empathy or sympathy. Exactly. Not so the first commandment is through various actions, coming to appreciate the inherent interconnectedness of everything, the inherent part that you are of a much bigger something, way bigger than you, and developing some capacity to care about the impact of your very presence, let alone the nature of your actions. And that's the beginning of what I call character. So the so you go from the world is not uh, the world doesn't revolve around me. We are all a part of a constantly evolving universe that can be beautiful if we want to look at and know it. And right. and uh, and so I love that commandment. And here's that, the, here's the problem in our day and time. Why I say that character disturbance is so epidemic. It is natural for all of us. We all, as infants, we all start out thinking that the world is our oyster, that we are, that it exists to serve our needs, that that we are the center of the universe. That's natural and normal. We right. have to grow our way out of that. Right. But the, here's the problem: we live in an age so unlike the Victorian age, where Every part of our social structure inhibits our ability to grow out of this narcissism. Right. It's crazy. The amount yes. of entitlement, the amount of relativism, the amount of um, exploitation, the amount of mutual use and abuse. It is so prevalent, so rampant 
we've gotten so desensitized to right. it because it is so it it crept up on us incrementally and got so egregious. I mean, some of the things that happen or that people do or say these days were shocked initially. Right. Yes. And then we stop being shocked. Yeah. Because they become all too commonplace. Yes. So people can't grow up in character in this crazy environment. And right. the only way we can turn things around is one heart at a time, starting with our own. That's that's beautiful. One heart at a time. I, I want to add that you know people cannot develop, embrace, and be motivated to evolve in their character it, because the world has become increasingly controlled by character disordered individuals. Yes. And if we look at this as a relationship, a codependent pathological narcissist relationship. The codependent can never find an identity because that threatens the, nar the the pathological narcissist, the character disordered person, and that that threat has to be put down. And so, what you say is done at a global level, at at, at a species level. And if we ever have a time, and not not today, I'd like to talk to you about my anthropological evolutionary explanation for it, going back to chimpanzees. But that's another time. Yeah, that may be another time. I, I've given that incredible thought too. You know, the the sociopaths and psychopaths that are running the show these days, they had great, uh, indispensable value back in the Stone Age. Oh yeah, they were they were the ones that got us here. I don't know if this term still exists. A productive narcissist, Steve Jobs. Yes. But the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction. As a matter of fact, I'm. Uh, I work with um, some very forward-leaning corporate leaders, and yeah. um, uh, they're visionaries who believe that we can even work with the folks with the power and the control, slowly impacting their hearts as well. Wow! And that's we, that's we are working. We are working to develop models that are effective. And frankly, some of the successes that we've found have startled even us. There is a way to reach the human heart. And you will find out very quickly whether the DNA that comprises that heart is so devoid of even empathy capacity that you're probably wasting your time. I do know one person, for example, that the only real benefit to any counsel was to get them to be a more civil psychopath. They will never really care about people like most of us would like to think that people right. can care about people, but at least they're not whacking people anymore. Right. <laughs> okay. At least, at least they're not doing the worst kinds of things, but they're not changing their stripes entirely. They're just changing, moderating their modus operandi. I created a YouTube video and I and I said, you can change a narcissist only by conditioning and you can't change the way they think because narcissists will do things that make them feel good. And if they're evolved enough, avoid things that make them feel badly. And if they can't manipulate you, they can't get into your head and they know that every time they do this, you do that while their behavior will modify, mm -hmm. but not so necessarily the way they think. But it sounds like that's yeah. more of a, yeah. a 
a basic part of your thought. So please continue. Well, well, and in my book, Essentials for the Journey, I'm allowed to tell this one story. I still altered some of the circumstances so that the person can't be completely identified. Nobody would actually know who this person is, but it's a real case of an individual who is definitely without question on the narcissism spectrum. Right. And who came to me one day um, because he had been dealt a bad deal in life. He was only married a very short time before his wife was involved in a very serious car accident that left her to some degree permanently disabled and somewhat disfigured facially because she had, I have a lot of reconstructive surgery. So all of a sudden, this guy who had everything and who felt entitled to everything, felt like he deserved everything, mm -hmm. uh, was wondering why such a horrible thing had befallen him. And of course, he wanted my permission to say, you know what, I don't deserve this. I deserve so much better. And I, of course, I wouldn't do that for him. I left him with his own conscience to wrestle with. And fortunately, he had enough of a conscience. Right. Not right. all narcissists do, but some do. Have and that's some. why the continuum is, is brilliant. And I'm so glad you developed right. it. Doug and so I tell the story about how this man comes up to me many years later. I didn't even recognize him. Yeah, He's got a beautiful family. His wife is still disabled, but they've been married 30 plus years. Yeah. He has a wonderful career. He's well beloved. And it was all in that one confrontation. Right. Where I didn't give him what he wanted, but by the grace of God, I gave him apparently what he needed in the way of a benign confrontation right. about where he was on his character path. Um, and that has made all the difference. So those stories happen. Yes. And, you know, and maybe it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but I really well, believe you should. I well, no, I really sincerely believe that I am giving what I have been given first. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Yes, I understand why now you said that. Yeah. You are you are a part of the universe that you have your own ego, your own ambitions, but you are connected to the greater good of humanity and you want to make a difference. And that comes from not to get uh, uh, spiritual here, but that comes from inside you or your heart. Right. And, Why not and, get spiritual about it? It's the truth. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, then we will. But yeah. but but that type of energy, that type of, and I say generalized love, that resonates, that connects to most people, but amazingly to that person. Because yeah. as I understand pathological narcissists, people with personality disorders, NPD especially, they were once children who just wanted to be loved, who were crushed at a very early age. And I'm simplifying it, of course. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes yeah. they can be the overindulged. They want to be loved, but they have so much shame that they don't even realize it. And it's cordoned off in their unconscious, et cetera. You, like a horse whisperer, you spoke their language and they heard it. They trusted you. 
they let down their walls and they were able to consider keep it alive in their consciousness and that's amazing that you did that so please toot your horn that's something that toot <laughs> well bring out the, I, I bring don't out the I don't I don't mind even somewhat authoritatively stating the case but once again I really sincerely believe that everything decent that I have given was given to me first. Either I was instructed by people in horrible relationships, I was instructed by the universe with the ability to see something that had been missed up until then, or whatever the case, but there isn't anything that I invented myself <laughs> that I can claim credit for. So I... I think one of the things that allows me to speak with such conviction about a lot of these things is that I have an appreciation for where it comes from. Right. I look at this as my book could not have been written. Everything that I have done in my 35 years of psychotherapy and helping people heal, if I did not come from a really screwed up family and had so many problems because it was whether it was God-given or it was part of the universe or my genetic, there was a part of me that wanted to overcome it and teach. Well, how could I teach what people didn't know if I if there wasn't an explanation for it? And right. somehow, I don't know if I would do it over again, but every one of my, my painful mistakes, relationship mistakes, I came out of it with this yearning to figure it out and then talk about it and explain it. Um, and that's the gift. And exactly. if, I, if I had that's to do how, it over again, I'd, yeah, I'd, it, I would choose Two words come to me that in the universe's healing of you and instruction of you in your own healing, you experienced at a level necessary to experience what a lot of other people might need in their own healing journey. And that's just how this benevolent universe works. Yes. Part, part of the first commandment in my book, Essentials for the Journey, is appreciating just how undeserved, unmerited, this fantastic gift that we have yeah. that, we, that we thumb our noses at or take for granted or various things. Just look at what we're doing to our planet. Right. Um, because we we have a tendency to somehow think that we're entitled to the breaths that were granted so generously and that we didn't do anything to merit. Right. That's where it all starts. It all starts yeah. from that awareness that we're part of something, something so overwhelmingly, genuinely loving and generous, something instructing us in what real love looks like. Because unfortunately today, what traps people so frequently is all the things that resemble love that aren't. But they're close enough to hook you. Hmm. Whether it be... Um, I, I say that folks who get into narcissistic uh, uh, relationships are are uh, seduced by the interest that the narcissist shows. Right. And they mistake interest for regard. Right. A person could be very, very interested in you for a variety of reasons. 
They may think you make great arm candy. Uh, they may see financial exploitation available to them. They may see all kinds of things in you that they desire immensely. That doesn't mean they have one bit of positive regard for you. And it doesn't even mean that they have the capacity of regard for you. Right. So until you really understand what, and as you pointed out earlier, most of us have childhood experiences that don't teach us. Or teach us the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the nature of the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, um, it's, it's interesting that when I started to put my ideas into words that became a training, that became a book, I just started realizing how brilliant uh, John Bowlby firstly created uh, what we understand as attachment theory. And hmm. then I found all these other brilliant people that had so many bits and pieces of information that I could put together to explain why people turned out loving themselves and wanting, needing, and attracting similarly self-loving people or why they kept repeating the same curse of falling in love with someone who's going to hurt them and they are not able to either protect themselves or uh, get out of the relationship. Talk more about those 10 commandments. Um, so it sounds like we you were talking about the first commandment and we move into the wonderful spiritual realm. It starts with an appreciation for our inherent uh, interconnectedness and being a part of something so grand that yeah. it's really hard to uh, to wrap our heads around. You know, the, the Jewish folks have a word when it comes to understanding this God that we say we worship, but don't, uh, uh, ineffable. So what does um, ineffable mean? It means you really just can't, there's no way to adequately say yeah. or express adequately right. this profound reality, right. this, this extraordinary, perfect, self-emptying, benevolent love that is behind all things and sustains all things. There's just no way to do it. So it starts with some rudimentary kind of awakening. Okay. That's where it starts. But then it moves beyond that to overcoming any sense of entitlement, any sense of self-focus. It goes on to an appreciation for what I call the truth. And that is basically wanting to really know, not vainly, not your own spin, not the validity of your own perceptions, but to really know, to humbly really seek and know what is true, what is real, to know yourself and all the dirty little secrets inside that none of us want to reckon with, all the little things that make us human. Um, as humans, we have this animal legacy. Mm -hmm. this, but as humans, we also have this unique capacity to be more. Right. But until we face all of that stuff inside us and own it, and then in love, choose to discipline it, to regulate it, mm. to regulate ourselves, to mm -hmm. operate in the world in a mindful way, 
uh, we will never develop good character. And so that's the midway point of character growth. And it all ends up with, in the last commandment, um, it all ends up with the capacity to genuinely love. Right. And that commandment, the last one, has to do with loving as abundantly as we know how to love, because it will change you. Right. It will make you better. And guess what? It'll make the world better, too, at the same time. What I hear from you uh, resonates with this idea that I have, or part of my own theory, my own steps, is that without the development of self-love, you cannot or should not um, seek an intimate relationship because the ghosts of your past are going to lead you in the wrong direction and towards maybe another pathological narcissist. So with self-love and the com the commandment before the last, and and I and I'm assuming this applies to both people who are character challenged and what I call self-love um, deficient uh, challenge is this congruence between um, feelings and thoughts integration with parts of your yourself that were split off. Yeah, and, yeah, so, I agree uh, with you, um, but I do also see it as kind of an ideal situation right. that somebody doesn't form an intimate relationship until they really know how to love themselves. Well, I wish that were practically possible. <laughs> but it's how you define self-love. Because yeah. in my stage 10, it follows the mastery of self-love abundance, which takes about a year in treatment. Then you're going to make all these mistakes that have challenges it's like it's like being 19 or 20 and dating you now have the, and come from a healthy family you now have the psychological uh, foundation to make good choices but you also have to learn and so what i say is someone who has who has achieved self-love abundance now they can start learning through their mistakes trial and error mm -hmm. what they should have learned when they were younger i i get angry I get what I think is justifiably angry with the allied professions. You know, when I was in school, there were only three or four major professions. Now there's a gazillion, oh, yeah. all, cl all claiming to be able to help you get a life. There's so many folks that, that dare to tell you that they can help you lead a better life. And what, what I get angry about is the egoistic and largely inaccurate terminology thrown about out there that once again, kind of like false love has enough resemblance to the real thing to hook you yeah. and make you think that this person has something, but well, in the end will hurt you because it's not true. Well, it, it, it and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is an kind of an echo of a personality disorder, character disorder person. You are trying to get something with um, for yourself while pretending that you're going to give something back in return in the process of not being honest. Using the analogy of a character disorder, you actually believe it. Right. And that's and why I'm, in the book, um, Essentials for the Journey, I describe that attitude toward the truth, what you're talking about, the greater truth, yeah. as real reverence. You have to develop real reverence for it. Um, and to revere something is to hold it in a place, you know, uh, to take off your shoes in the presence, so to speak, <laughs> and like say, that. you know, this, this is big.
This has yeah. value. And to humbly approach and say, you know what? Uh, who am I to play fast and loose with the? And the folks that play fast and loose with the truth today are so abundant and so egregious. Oh, my goodness. You can't turn on the television. You can't even turn on some of the best news programs right. without hearing nothing but dribble. Dribble. Nothing or, or, but self-serving propaganda. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but it is. Uh, it goes to what you said earlier: is the our society has become hyper influenced and somewhat controlled by people with self-serving, manipulative self-interest. That well, th this is why I say that, and I sincerely believe that we have to change the world only one way, as Dr. King said, one heart at a time, starting yeah. with our own. And yes. the reason is, is that for several decades now, we've had this classic vicious cycle going on, this classic vicious cycle, mm -hmm. whereby as more and more character deficient or challenged people populated the society, the society itself took on a character, a zeitgeist, an atmosphere, that reflected all the pathology within it. And a lot of the institutions and structures meant to promote character corrupted and disintegrated. Some disappeared altogether. Uh, and as a result of that, more and more character deficient people entered the society. And then that further corrupted the society. Right. And that further, further corrupted the individual's character development. And that further, it's a classic vicious cycle. So how do you break any vicious cycle? Please tell me. At its simplest, weakest point. Mm -hmm. That's where you have to intervene. At the point most likely to get you in. Okay. And that, right? and that is the human heart. The human starting, heart. starting with our own. Right. Because if my heart is right, and the person I'm trying to engage with senses it intuitively, and I'm going to get in, and we're going to make a difference together. And according to the Holy Scripture of United Airlines Manual, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your child. That's correct. And, and you cannot do anyone good if you cannot breathe. But what would you like to say in summary or to, to, to wrap things up? I want to say that there's nothing that we can't do better than all of the structures in the world that are failing us. So it's up to us. The reason we have this mess is because, and I'm going to be very careful with this, but I mean it, it sounds rough, but because we didn't know better and we allowed it to happen. Right. We didn't realize what we were letting happen because we didn't have enough knowledge about ourselves and about how to take better care of ourselves. And so we let this happen, not maliciously, mm -hmm. but kind of ignorantly. And uh, right. and the, the, the exploiters among us, took advantage, yes, but we did. can change it. We have immense power and there is absolutely nothing we can't do better than the structures that are out there proclaiming that they can do it for us. So it starts with 
knowing oneself and loving oneself. You know, I sound like the all the ancient sages, you know, saying you know the what? same things over and over again. Yeah, I, but we don't singing, listen. <laughs> and you're also singing my song or the song yeah. that I identify with. So please, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, and uh, if, if so if I were to confront any Ross uh, grandiosity, Ross, I would say it's not your song, but you heard the tune too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. There's resonance there. You know, there's yeah. resonance. And um I just want people to have, leave with that thought that we can really turn things around. That we're at we're at a we're at a precipice here. We're on we're at both a precipice and a threshold. I think yes. And I I do believe that things are moving around. The this consulting firm that I work with sometimes that deals with the high powered folks mm -hmm. is is uh, is dedicated to changing minds and hearts in the boardrooms uh, also in um, in softening the hearts of those who have been historically only concerned about their levels of compensation and about the bottom line and appeasing investors as opposed to making this world a better place because they were in it. Right. Um, and so I have some hope. Yes, I do. Everyone listen to this man, George. Gosh, I, I am honored. Um, I am grateful. And boy, it was even fun um, hearing you talk and sharing some of my ideas with you. You're a good man and you have important things that people should consider. Do you have a website or a place? that I have a website. It's drgeorgesimon.com. D-R-G-E-O-R-G-E-S-I-M-O-N.com. Got a Facebook page, a YouTube channel where my podcasts presently are, uh, or my Facebook page. Buy his books. And oh, yeah. I am having such hope for Essentials for the Journey. Everything we've talked about, my life's work, my deepest commitment is in that book. Yes. Well, you are a gift to my my path, a man whose uh, wisdom and knowledge um, I admire and revere. Thank you for your contributions. Uh, thank you for being a part of this podcast. Or Anytime. Anytime. So thank you. Thank you so much. And um, let's keep in touch. Okay. We'll do. You, you take care. Yeah, Bye -bye. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Building a self-love recovery community means the world to me. Spread the word. Let people know what we're talking about. And until we meet next, I'd like to leave you my favorite of all sayings by George Eliot. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Don't forget that. Our future is in our hands, despite what anyone has told you before. You can be the self-love abundant person you've always dreamt of. It's your birthright.